Hello, I'm Michelle Duke catlin and welcome to Episode 3 of Season 1 of Trude Up, the podcast that invites you to be the change. Today I'm starting with a spoiler alert. I'm starting at the end of the story and moving backwards. For those who haven't heard, in January 2024, the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons stripped Dr. Mark Trozzi of his license to practice medicine. His crime was doing critical thinking and defying the mainstream narrative about COVID, deemed by the CPSO to be professional misconduct. I was struck by the term misconduct, defined as improper or wrong behavior. It is behavior, or who we're being, that is at the heart of these trued-up conversations. Dr. Trozzi didn't have his license revoked because he made medical errors or misdiagnoses. He wasn't a bad doctor. In fact, he was a respected emergency room doctor for 25 years, who trained other doctors from around the world in trauma medicine. A further fact, he wasn't even practicing medicine when the charges were laid. When Dr. Trozzi's independent research led him to the truth about COVID, he voluntarily gave up his job, a job he loved, and sold everything he owned to focus on getting accurate information out to the public. Dr. Trozzi's disciplinary tribunal was instigated not because of malpractice, but because someone reported his website. What happens in a society when unpopular opinions lead to censure and excommunication? Clearly, people suppress themselves from speaking out and standing up to authority. How many stories have we heard of doctors who wouldn't write mask or jab exemptions because they didn't want to lose their jobs? When speaking of the Freedom Convoy, Dr. Misha Susoff lamented, the streets of Ottawa should not have been packed with trucks. It should have been the Mercedes and the Escalades, and it should have been the doctors honking and waving flags. They should have been there to protect us. Imagine if doctors had united with Dr. Trozzi or even followed suit. Imagine a world of professionals who put their oaths above their allegiance to bureaucratic governing bodies. In the current world of normalized corruption and compliance, one has to wonder why some people refuse to consent to injustice. What moves a man to put principles above a paycheck? What leads him to willingly and knowingly put himself in the line of fire? What forges his resolve to do the right thing at great personal cost? Thankfully, we don't have to imagine these things. Today, we hear the answers to these questions from Dr. Mark Trozzi. We start our conversation by delving into his fascinating past and unusual path to medicine. This is the story of how a good and moral man is forged. I've been grappling with the questions about why some people stand up and some people don't. Why some people see and some people don't. And a lot of conversation is had around what people are doing, but not a lot of conversation is had around who people are being. And 
we all talk about what's happening in the world as a spiritual war, but we focus on material world tactics. And what I'm interested in is what is it? What is it about you? So you, I've, you know, I've met you a few times and you've talked about, you know, growing up with working class friends. So first, like, how did you, how did you decide on medicine? What drew you to it? So let's just start there. Well, sure. Well, that's kind of a funny story because as a kid, I was really good at math and physics and therefore quite good at chemistry and okay at biology and not very good at English. So, so, um, so you might've thought like by aptitude, you know, like when you look at my university scores and my high school scores, you'd say, well, this guy should probably do his PhD in mathematics or something like that. Now, unfortunately, I've forgotten most of my calculus because don't use it much in medicine. So, but the interesting thing, kind of what led me to medicine, I mean, there's almost a bit of a random element to it. So I think on the one hand, I've always been interested in health. I was the youngest of four siblings. My brothers were really good athletes. Like, you know, my oldest brothers would win like first prizes and hundred meter sprinting. And of course, being the youngest uh, and therefore the smallest, you know, I was always trying to catch up. <clears throat> so I was the guy that ended up reading, you know, getting the books about, you know, how to make yourself stronger. And, you know, I had the, the, the posters in my room and the little weight, you know, the weight training set you could buy from consumers distributors after you saved <laughs> up from raking leaves and cutting lawns. And so that, there was that side of me. I was kind of that kid who wanted to know what, what should I eat to make myself stronger and, and how do I exercise and stuff? So there's that side of it. But another side of it was like in my family, actually higher education in terms of formal higher education was, was really not a valued thing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my family were, were Jehovah witnesses and they saw the world through a different perspective. I think it's just reality of, of how we make the best of everything. But I think, you know, a little bit of insecurity can drive a person to do great things. So I think being the younger sibling, being like used to trying to catch up, kind of made me ambitious to try and do more with myself. Um, and, uh, and with regards to education, I mean, I was very good in school. If I sat in the front row in anything to do remotely with science or mathematics, I would achieve phenomenal grades without really doing homework, just sit there and pay attention. And luckily my father gave me lots of little taps in the back of the head and taught me how to pay attention as a kid. So, um, but I had this one math or this one biology teacher, Miss Martin Walters. And I, I think, uh, she was, she was like the prettiest teacher and the sweetest teacher, you know? So at, I was probably, I think grade nine or so. And, um, and she used to say to me during class, like about three times, she said, Mark, I'd like you to stay after class. I want to talk to you. Okay. So I stayed after class and I can remember just sitting down on a desktop next to me and saying, you know, Mark, I really think that you should become a doctor. And I really, to this day, I can't remember exactly why she thought so. Um, but a few years later, um, when I was, uh, about 16, I actually left home, uh, and just, I just had strong, uh, strong things that I wanted to do both athletically and I guess academically that my, you know, my family at that time didn't support it. So anyways, I was one of those kids who left home at 16 and actually had a pretty, uh, 
for a Canadian, I, I, I had, uh, I learned about poverty, but again, that's a Canadian version of poverty, which is a, a wealthy version of life for, in, you know, some <laughs> destitute village in Zambia or something. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I had athletic goals and I just, I just, I just kind of set my mind on what she'd said. She'd said, you should, you should go to medical school. You know, I, I didn't really think of it beyond. I thought, well, I'm really interested in health and boy, if I'm a doctor, then I'll know super health. I mean, I'll, I'll be able to, I'll know the things I need to know to achieve super health. Right. And and as well, you know, being that at that point, I mean, at one part of high school, I literally lived in an old car and went to high school and I had three part-time jobs. Like I really, there were lots of times where I didn't have enough food. And so I set this goal. I thought, you know what, I should go to university. I should go to medical school. And so I set my mind on it and um, just applied myself to it. So that's sort of how I ended up there. You know, when I got to medical school, as much as I, I got along with my classmates, I didn't really feel like I was the typical student there. I, you know, uh, a lot of the other students, their parents were doctors and nurses and engineers and um, just very different backgrounds. I was kind of a blue collar, blue collar kid in the medical school. But there's a couple of us. I'm it's so interesting. And I, I want to get to this because I'm just thinking about like, so you know what it's like to go without. Right. Yeah. And. Here you are, so I don't want to skip ahead too much, but I, I want to talk about, because I really, I want to speak to people who either don't know what's going on or know what's going on, but think that somebody else is going to handle it, you know? So yeah. you, let's just talk about, before I, I go to the <laughs> being without and, and what you've sacrificed over the last few years, Let's just go back to the before times, you know, so before this uh, COVID crisis, what was a typical day like for you? How were you practicing medicine? Well, in some ways, I had a pretty ideal life from my own perspective. So, you know, I worked my way from uh, sleeping in the old car in high school, you know, uh, until eventually, you know, I graduated medical school. I found that emergency medicine was an area I worked really well in. Um, and I developed a, a, a deep love for nature. I mean, that's probably one of the hugest factors in my life. And so, um, and I also like variety. Like I'm a person who likes to do carpentry too, right? And I, so, you know, by the time we get to COVID and I'm in, you know, at that point, I was, you know, 55 when they launched COVID. So by the time you get to COVID, you know, I've had a chance to work out a lot of bugs. I've had a chance to make a lot of mortgage payments. And and I had a really idyllic lifestyle in that I, I very much like my job as emergency doctor. And I think, I think I'm quite good at it. Um, I didn't do it too much. In other words, I never wanted to be one of those people that hated their job because they just did too much of it. So mm. I would put in really solid days. Like I would go in, schedule myself to myself. 14, 15 hours, um, and you know I call part of the part of the week too, but I had a lot of days that weren't doctoring. So I had this really great career in rural emergency medicine, which is exciting for a doctor because to be a rural emergency doctor, 
you have to be ready to face everything and anything that can happen to a human being as the doctor, the only doctor. So you can't consult the surgeon, consult the anesthetist. No, you got to deal with it. Whether whether it's somebody who's who's having a schizophrenic breakout breakdown, or someone delivering a baby in the middle of the night, or someone who's just crashed their car and has have so, uh, you know their lungs are collapsing, and you have to do the right things to save their life. So. It was a really great, it's a really great career for me in that respect. I like responding to emergencies. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I was never very expert, but I sort of like martial arts, you know, where you build, you build reflexes. So when something terrible happens, you have a way to deal with it. You have a way to stay calm and, and have these pre-worked out patterns or approaches to problems that you can solve them. So I always like, you know, I like any kid, I think, you know, you want to be a superhero. You want to be the guy that swoops in and solves problems. So emergency gave me a chance to do that. But being a rural emerge doc and, and having progressed to the place where I felt, yeah, I'm, I'm ready and confident to be the only doctor for a hundred miles dealing with the emergencies. It also meant I could live in regions that where I really loved the environment. So you know, as well, as much as I could have this very intense career in emergency medicine, I also had these other days where I'd be dragging my canoe through the woods and paddling out into a lake, you know, or, or swimming out and watching, you know, the sunset from way out in the lake. Um, I even had a horse, which was a childhood dream of mine. So I, I like training horses. I'm pretty good. Like if you give me a wild horse, I can pretty much make a friend of it and ride it. Wow. Um, so that was kind of my, that was kind of my, uh, my lifestyle coming into COVID. I never was a big money guy. So, but at the same time, because of my early life of going without, I also am not somebody who just needs to spend a bunch of money every time I turn around. Like I'm quite comfortable going into a thrift store and getting a t-shirt. But, uh, so as a result, even though I had this fairly balanced lifestyle, I also had a great teaching job, teaching trauma medicine to doctors around the world because it's an area that I have a lot of interest in. So I'm pretty skilled at. And um, and I had I had a I had this nice balance. I, I had a house. I had some investments. Uh, you know, um, I've been very much involved in uh, ecosystem protection uh, in Canada and and other uh, continents. Um, so, you know, that was my life was this really neat combination of this of this emerged doctor who loved his job, had a nice house where I could walk down the road to a lake and go for a swim. And and I had a, a, a nice balanced life with my time in nature and, and even, you know, playing with horses. So that was life up until COVID. Yeah. And then, so I, I'm struck by, you know, you're talking about being with horses, being in nature, enjoying carpentry, this balance. I'm wondering, well, it's kind of a two-part question. It's what is it that changed that? Like, what did you see, observe, notice? And is that related to this kind of multifaceted approach you have to life? Uh, I hope I don't lose track, but one tangent to it all is another area I've always been interested in is, is like spirituality and consciousness. And, you know, even in medical school, a lot of us so as a young, very young person, I wanted to work out to become strong. And, but I also wanted to try to become, you know, as enlightened as I could. Uh, 
so there was there was always a a part of me, you know, very imperfect, of course, that was trying to evolve spiritually as well. And uh, one of the things I loved about my job um, was that, you know, in very simplistic terms, I, I like th- simple terms, emergency doctors and trauma doctors, we like simple terms. In other words, if everything goes crazy, how do I think my way through this? So one of the things that I like is a golden rule which I consider to be the highest law, which is to treat others the way I want to be treated. So one of the things that was fabulous about the career I chose is that practicing the golden rule was absolutely key. I mean, it's sort of key to doing good at everything, right? If you're, whether you're a mechanic or a waitress or a doctor or a journalist, you know, it's generally a good idea, but I mean, certainly it's easy to apply to emergency. The fact that I could, you know, these people that people come to the hospital when they've got a crisis, when they've been injured, when they're sick. Um, nothing you'd like more when you're in a bad situation than somebody show up and genuinely be your friend. So I had this neat job as much as it. There's lots of science and anatomy and physiology and pharmacology and biochem. There's a lot of scientific stuff in, in my work as an emergency doctor. But the essence was to treat people well. Right. So, you know, that when I would start my day, I think all of us, you know, we start our day. There's a point at the beginning of your day, you grab that morning coffee or you take the breath and say, okay. And I always say, yep, I'm just going to love everybody. And I used to tell my students, because I taught medical students quite a bit too. And I'd say, you know, the key to doing a great job here is two things. One is to love the people. And two is to try, like really try hard to do a good job. Don't look for, don't look for how you can do the minimum. And that's sort of, I think, one of the plagues in our society, whether it's doctors or judges or, or, you know, is how do I just pass the buck, take my paycheck? You know, so it's easy, for instance, you know, someone goes to the hospital and says, oh, doctor, I'm having these headaches. It's easy for the doctor to say, well, see your family doctor. And they say, well, I don't have a family doctor. It's like, okay, well, I'll get the nurse to give you a card so you can call for a family doctor. The person's handed a card and it's over. And the doctor has, you know, limited his time investment to two minutes. On the other hand, if you think, well, what would I want if I was this person is I would want a doctor to sit down and go, okay, let's talk about these headaches and try to figure them out, you know, and maybe 20, 30 minutes later of talking and examining and sitting and thinking together, maybe putting together a plan to sort it out, to figure it out, you know, that's a lot more work, right? But so, but that was kind of the, the mantra of how I worked. So um now of course there wasn't a contradiction between the first the prime directive which was to follow the golden rule and another directive which was to get paid so i could you know buy my stuff and feed my kids and you know live mm-hmm. life like other people those two things weren't in conflict until 2020 that's when they came into conflict and i had to choose between them unfortunately okay so I want to get to that. Well, let's, let's go there now since you just brought it up. So you had the choice either do a good job or feed your family. So I want you to say more about that. Why did you choose that? How, how did other people not choose that? And what is that conflict? What was that conflict? Well, I mean, it became fairly apparent. 
I think to myself and a lot of people, not, it's not just like a hunch that some of us had. I mean, you have to remember in 2020, when people were told the hospitals were full, the hospitals were empty, right? So that means that in 2020, when I'd go to the, and what I call the anti-social distancing line outside the grocery store in the snow, and people would say, oh, Dr. Mark, you go to the front, like putting me ahead of their grandmother. And I'd say, why? Why should I go to the front? And they said, because of what you're going through at the hospital. And I said, what am I going through? They said, well, you know, all those people dying of COVID and you there risking your life, you could catch COVID and die. And I, I was like, that's not true at all. The place is empty. So <clears throat> during that period, I did a lot of research because, you know, I didn't just assume that this, that this pandemic was a pandemic. I thought it was a pandemic at that point. And so as I understood it, I was going to receive a new variant of a coronavirus that was super deadly. And so I better figure out what to do before any of these people showed up. And I, I've never been a person to just, you know, just be like a cog in a wheel and wait for someone to hand me the like, okay, this is what you do. You check these boxes, check these boxes. And if it's, you know, if the, if it's like this, this, and this, do this, this, I've never been that type. I've always been a type to research. So I researched coronaviruses, right? And I learned a lot of neat stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, some of the things I learned very early was uh, how big is a coronavirus compared to how big is the giant, relatively giant hole in the, the paper napkins that everyone was told to wear over our face. Um, I researched things like how do you, how do you treat a coronavirus? What, what are antiviral uh, mechanisms that work against this class of viruses, which are a type of messenger RNA viruses? And, you know, you do that research, you go, wow, look at this. Ivermectin is extremely promising for that. And so is zinc if it's accompanied with hydroxychloroquine. Um, and so, for instance, right there, and then what I started to see was, wait, why are these tools being banned? Why are like doctors getting in trouble for prescribing safe and effective treatments for COVID? Now, keeping in mind, there still weren't many people around really getting sick with COVID. I mean, you could crash a motorcycle and have a swab of your nose and end up that they died of COVID or died with COVID. But that was just a ridiculous statistics game. So a lot of these things factored together, even the, the mathematics of these PCR swabs that that people were doing, um, you know, a lot of things came together for me to realize that, that we're being deceived, that this is an agenda rather than a response. And again, so lots I, of time I, to study empty hospitals in 2020. So, yep, yeah, please, Michelle. I, I want to go back to what you said. So you, you were always somebody to research, right? You always were curious about what was going on. So, I'm, I'm so going back to my earlier question. I'm struck by first of all the fact that I think most people assume that doctors would all do the same thing, but that's not the case. So, do you think that your interest in nature, in horses, in carpentry, like these very these things that require different parts of your brain, different ways of thinking or reacting. Do you think that is related to why and how you did the kind of thinking you did and why aren't other people doing that? So that's kind of a two part. 
Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's a part of it is, is uh, I tend to see things from various perspectives. And if you look at my, my social circle, it's not a bunch of doctors and lawyers. My social circle is, you know, you know, like if you look at a lot of my clo- my closest friends leading up to this, you know, uh, a school teacher, uh, a gentleman that owns a cleaning company, someone extremely interested in uh, natural health, a uh, farmer, uh, you know, um, an excavator, right? So if you look at my close circle of friends, <clears throat> you can see that I have the ability to, to see things from different angles. And, and maybe there was, there was there was sort of an element in, in this where, you know, kind of like people with common sense started making sense of it. But I think the other thing is you have to see it from, you know, to have compassion for, for how the doctors and nurses got played into this thing. Uh, you have to look at how this was done, okay? And, and, you know, forgive me if I go too deep into this area, but, you know, I always want to preface this. People need to look at, for instance, the work of Dr. David Martin. Look at the Fauci files and realize that none of this COVID happened as a new thing. The patents go back 15 years on COVID. The researcher on coronaviruses to be weaponized and used like this goes back to the 60s. So the idea that, you know, that somebody let a bat, uh, you know, uh, cross a virus into humans in, a, in, in a, a market that just happened to be two miles from a high level uh, gain of function, weaponization of virus lab funded by millions from the likes of Fauci and Trudeau. Uh, so people need to know that none of that, none of this was... Uh, an accident. So everything was planned out. You know, people go back to event 201 in, in I think, October, September of 2019, where, you know, the Department of Defense and uh, a lot of people in banking and geopolitics were, were sitting around planning this thing, essentially. And the one thing they didn't talk about was how to treat the disease. Isn't that bizarre, right? Uh, but so I think a lot of planning, I, just like herding cattle, you know, I mean, humans have been herded like cattle in the last few years. And when you herd cattle or horses, you kind of often only need to herd a couple of them and they, they'll get the rest to come. So getting the doctors, nurses, teachers on board and politicians was very necessary. So look at it from a doctor's perspective, if you go back to that. I mean, one day we're told, oh, my God. There's a completely unique virus sweeping through the world. We've got these mathematical models. Now, most doctors wouldn't have looked in and found out that Ferguson that made the models was a complete fraudster. But I mean, we've got modeling showing like hundreds of millions of people could die. This might be the plague that wipes out mankind, essentially. And uh, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. We're going to get, we've got the top experts in the world working at the World Health Organization, and they will tell us what to do. So everybody do what we're told to do. We're going to beat this thing. Um, and, and you're now the frontline superheroes of the war, you know? So if you look at, there, there's a few factors to that, which was in medicine, okay, for to myself, I'm an emergency doctor. I normally don't appoint myself and start debating against infectious disease specialists as I have in the last few years. Normally, if I consulted a specialist in an area, whether it was an obstetrician or an infectious disease specialist, a cardiologist, I may be taking care of that patient, but when I reach out to them, I'm probably going to take their advice. That's why I called 
them. I called them and said, listen, I've got this problem. It's like this and this and this. It's your area of specialty. What do you recommend? And they might say, oh, well, actually, Mark, you know, to, you know, I would better use this blood thinner than that one and better you do this for the electrolytes and then get them on a monitor. I would tend to do it. So it's easy to see how a lot of emergency doctors, general practitioners, and really doctors in general, if we if we buy into this idea that, wow, like the top experts in the world are telling us what to do, that you just do it, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing was that there was a lot of fear for everybody. I mean, we were all told that, you know, we were on the brink of, of a modern day plague. Um, of course, doctors, you know, were told that, you know, your people are coming in that door and they might cough in your direction or they don't even have to cough. They don't even have to look sick. They, you know, that that you could get sick and die. So there was tons of fear right now, decreases in mental capacity to think, right? So when people are afraid, they don't think much. Everybody's so excited that nobody can think clearly and see how people are being played against each other. So, um, and, and then the other thing was, if as long as you're going along with it, you were also pretty special. I mean, you are the modern day superhero, the frontline worker. And even at a time when other people are non-essential and have to stay home, you are essential. You can get in your car and go places, right? And then if you take it a step further, imagine, you know, usually when you go to work, you're busy. Like my job was very busy until COVID, like 25 years, very busy until COVID and then sitting on my hands. Everybody likes a slack day at work. I mean, even if you love your job, everybody likes day. So suddenly we had nothing but slack days. We were superheroes. We had special rights and privileges in society. And there were actually like little bonus pays for things. I mean, anything to do with COVID paid really well. Like if you diagnosed somebody with COVID, that paid well. If you if you know COVID was a bit of a, a bit of a, a cash cow, everybody got tips for COVID. Um and then it became apparent as you get a few months into it and people like myself who question things, it became apparent that in addition to all the carrots, there was a stick. And by no means was this the time for anyone to screw up this global response by asking questions or disagreeing with anything, which of course was a violation of the Hippocratic Oath because the Hippocratic Oath requires that a doctor use their, use their best judgment, not use... Dr. Tam's best judgment. Um, so these, I think these are some of the conflicts that doctors were in. Um, and and uh, that's okay, the way so it went. I, yeah. I get that you had, because of your natural curiosity and you had the time, you were researching. Okay. So that explains why you saw. What is it that had you speak out? Given the carrots and the stick, what is it that had you speak out and why do you think others haven't? Well, um, again, you can imagine that at a conscious level, I think a lot of the other doctors, and I know it's hard to believe for people uh, that have done their homework. It's hard to believe that a lot of doctors were actually in a state, at least at a conscious level of, actually believe in all this stuff right uh it, it was really an example where i learned you know that you know they say you know well sh- you know when they say people are sheep well i've come to realize you know smart sheep are still sheep 
right? <laughs> like if you educate a sheep, it doesn't turn it into an eagle or something completely different. Um, so I think, but what, yeah, uh -huh. but, but people, I mean, people are human beings, right? So yeah, you know, we use, we, we call people sheep, but yeah, I'm not sure how useful it is, right? Because people are human beings and yeah. what is it that has some people become sheep-like and well, others not? Well, well, in this scenario, I mean, it, it became increasingly evident that like that the price to pay for in any way uh, going against the grain of the response to COVID was going to be severely punished. That became fairly obvious. And in the heightened state of fear, I mean, I know, I know doctors, you know, particularly some young doctors who legitimately were terrified at the beginning of COVID. They were literally, and like you're going, look around, there's nobody here. It's totally quiet. But they were terrified because they really believed they were going to die from an infection any day now when somebody came in the door or that there were going to be so many people dying and none of us would know how to do it because there was no cure, et cetera. And fear reduces intelligence. That's a that's a given. If you if you can just get people afraid, you can get them to do a lot of stupid things. Doesn't matter how smart they are. Um, so I think those are all factors that that came together. To you know the, the the doctors and nurses were coerced into this really, and then and then the other thing is you know you have to go back to my my basic premise, the golden rule. I knew that the masks were hurting me and they weren't doing me any good. I could be off work for several days. My airway, my skin, everything was fine. I'd go to work and put that facial barrier on. And within 20 minutes, my nose would be itchy and dripping. I knew that dentists were seeing increased oral disease. I could see the fact that all my coworkers, when they took their masks off, had a rash on their face. And and I did some research on, on you know, respirator mass, etc. And, and I knew that it made absolutely no sense and that it was actually harming our health. So how could I, as a, as a doctor who practices the golden rule and has a Hippocratic oath responsibility to advise you based on my best judgment, how could I tell you anything but my best judgment? I never had to lie for a living before, right? Mm -hmm. I just had to, I just had to think and feel and act like, you know, which is a very, that's a very nice and latent state of being to exist in. <clears throat> and so, so suddenly I was, I was, you know, being twisted to go along with things that, that didn't make sense. Like the denial of treatment for COVID, if it came up, like maintaining this, this deception that all these people were sick and dying of COVID when clearly they were not. Um, and, and then, of course, when they started to get ready to roll out those injections, right, um, I just read the ingredients. I know that sounds funny, but I only had to read like three, three lines and went, wait, what is this? Because I know what a vaccine is, right? A vaccine is some damaged virus or particles, broken up particles of a virus. You inject a little bit of them into you. And so when I looked at the emergency use authorization, and you get to page 12 for Moderna and Pfizer. And I mean, it's just a few lines. And, and even though they, there's a lot of garbage in there, like really bad stuff in there, they didn't even put on those labels. Things are worse than I thought then. But when I looked and said messenger RNA pegylated nanoparticles, well, I only had to spend a few hours on a computer 
right? And realize, oh my God, pegylated nanoparticles are this very unusual baby shot. Why would you want a vaccine to do that? And then when you look at messenger RNA, that's genetic material. This isn't a vaccine. This is some sort of a genetic experiment. And then when you look at the history of vaccine research for coronaviruses, even if you use vaccines, you find out that, oh boy, does that ever go wrong? By then, I already knew from the math that the PCR was being used in an inappropriate fashion, that cases were overestimated, the deaths were exaggerated, and really more people in the world weren't dying than usual. And so it, to me, it was very important to immediately tell every single human being that I encountered that it all looked to me for guidance or was open to say, hey, these injections coming out, better not take them. So I want to ask you about this because I knew you read the ingredients, right? And it, you know, you said it sounds kind of funny, but it seems kind of obvious, right? Just a simple thing. Read the ingredients. I mean, we do that with our food. You know, we put yeah. anything else into our body. We, you know, those of us who are interested in health, we read the ingredients. What struck me the first time I heard you say that was so. I've never thought of reading the ingredients of, of uh, a vaccine, an injection, and yet, you know, I, I won't put anything in my body that I haven't read the ingredients, but that doctors wouldn't do that. I mean, yeah. so yeah. I keep coming back to why did you read the ingredients? Why didn't other doctors read the ingredients? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, maybe it goes back to, you know, my own childhood. Like I grew up in uh, a good home. I, I, got, I love my parents and my brothers, but at the same time, a, a pretty narrow uh, view, a vision of the world, you know. Uh, and over time, I came to realize that that really wasn't what I considered to be an accurate and thorough look at life and history and God and everything else. So I guess I, there was a certain background, even as a young person, of being willing to question the narrative that I'd been given and to look at it for myself. Um, I had a classmate in medical school, a really neat guy, and um, Dr. Mark Lewin. I hope he's out there. God bless him. But uh, before medical school, he'd done his master or his uh, graduate thesis paper uh, on levels of moral reasoning. Um, and I'm reluctant to use the term levels. I would say more styles of moral reasoning, but he used to, he talked to me about this and he said, you know, there's different ways that people make the decisions about what to do. You know, how do we make our decisions that navigate us in life? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for instance, a lot of people's way of navigating is just do what everyone else is doing. And that's not bad. I mean, in a healthy society, I do that sometimes, you know, if I'm driving to Ottawa and I'm going through Perth, and I'm trying to remember which how you make the little turns through Perth. Well, you just follow everybody else because almost everybody else is going to Ottawa. So it's not a crazy way to go. But Mark, Mark pointed out to me that he said, you know, you're kind of unusual, Mark, in that you like to really think things through from first principles. And he, and he said, and most people don't do that. Now, maybe I'm sure that's got its pros and cons. But um, I do like to I do like to really understand things. Even my approach to medicine, uh, one of the Same reasons I've been on. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. There's a slight oh. delay. I, I want you to say more about that. Thinking from first principles. What does that mean? 
Well, in medicine, for instance, um, you know, we had a teacher in med school, Dr. Larry Brownscombe, who was just our favorite teacher for, for years in medical school. And he used to teach us this. He used to say, if you understand how something works, then you can understand how it breaks. So learning to think things through rather than just memorizing lists. Um, and, and this is very much the difference between the way a human thinks and the way AI might think. So, and this has been a criticism. Uh, in fact, I told my medical students about five years ago, I said, you know, you have to be very careful because you guys, in many ways, you're being trained to think like to become an extension of AI rather than to become a doctor. And so you see this progression in medicine of what are called diagnostic criteria and treatment protocols. And, and this is where, you know, people have probably seen, you know, they go to a hospital and someone says, well, why are you here? And they say, well, chest pain. And they go, okay. And they grab the, the iPad with the chest pain template and they go through and they go, well, uh, does it feel like this, this, or this? And they check one. And does it feel like this, this, or this? And they check one. And they go through these checklists. And then at the end of the checklist, it comes up with a score or a category. And then based on that score or category, you make, you make certain pronouncements. And then you enter certain treatment protocols. You say, well, if, if they scored 5.6 on the such and such scale, then their treatment is this, this, and this. I don't like to think that way. To me, that's not at all rewarding. I like to think... How do things work? How do they break? I like to really understand it. And until I understand something, I find it very hard to do it. Right. In other words, somebody says, do this, this, and this. I'm like, why? And, and, and they say, just do it. I say, I can't even remember how to do it until it makes sense to me. Never mind want to do it. So I like to understand things, at least at some, at some level. And, and so that was the same, you know, with COVID. I wanted to understand it. And then I wanted to to be acting as a whole conscious being that my, my thoughts and understanding are connected to my actions and what I say and what I advise people, which is really all I've ever done. I mean, that's just what I did. It, and it wasn't a problem until COVID. In fact, you know, if you look at patient satisfaction, I've had extremely high patient satisfaction in my career. I have a very good reputation with patients and I generally get along with the other doctors. I, I really like that. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> writing it down, act as a whole conscious being. I think that's, that seems to be a missing component these days. How do we, how do we have people, I don't, I, I don't want to say, you know, behave in a certain way, right? Because that's not really what I'm talking about, but really access that whole conscious being in themselves. No, it's and why question. is that missing? Well, I think it's interesting. So someone asked me a question at a, I was speaking at an event recently and I really get an, I get a lot of good chances to, uh, to meet a lot of people who are grateful for the work I do. And a lot of people bring other people to events where I speak. And, um, and as we mentioned earlier, like fear decreases intelligence. That's, that's very simple. When once people are emotionally riled up, they just they just want to run in the direction they're told. They don't want to think. It's not a time to think. It's a time to run. We're in fight or flight. And and the COVID agenda, the propaganda, if there's one thing it focused on was fear. And it also focused on a style of mental abuse, which is to keep changing the goalposts 
and get people to accept that until you've got people that are so submitted that you can you can tell them two plus two is three and they'll believe it. And if two days later you tell them two plus two is five, they'll believe that too. So that psychological manipulation was heavy on humanity, was fear and then this this constant changing narrative, which made it made it impossible for anyone to be sure of anything. You're just like, wow, reality just changes. I just have to keep listening and be awake because if they show run the other way, I'll start running that way. And then if they say, no, 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 stop, run that way, we'll run that way. So that was the atmosphere um, of COVID. And it's interesting because this is where I, I go back to saying I was speaking at an event a month or two ago, really uh, nice, nice people. I think it was up in Peterborough or Apsley. But in any event, somebody said, hey, what do I do? Like, uh, I've got some family members and even they just they just can't look at the information. I'm like, and the information's overwhelming. If anybody's like saying, are these shots effective vaccines? No. Are they dangerous? Extremely. Have they killed people? A lot. Have they injured people? A lot. Do they help with COVID? No, they make COVID worse. Those are all truths that can be proven or can be seen by anyone willing to look at the information. So this fellow said, well, what do I do? I've got these family members who they just, they just won't look at the information. They just, they're just, they're so, they're angry that I'm even questioning it. So they're all wrapped up in this emotional state of low IQ. And, um, and I, I thought, well, you know what, actually the best thing that we could do is to calm down. Cause if we can calm down, then we can think, well, how do people calm down? And I think this is, this is where you notice a lot of people that have a spiritual grounding and that spiritual grounding might come from Christianity or Buddhism or Islam or, or, or Jewish teachings. It might come from studying martial arts, meditating in the bush, a lot of different places. But when people have a, a way to feel um, removed from fear, when, when they're not frightened, then they can think straight. So, so the responses help them to become spiritually and psychologically grounded so they can step outside of the fear and then they'll be able to think and then they'll be able to look at the facts right and how do we do um, that well i think th i think there's options you know i mean um i mean christians uh believe that god is with them believe that if if we do the right things uh that we can't go wrong the, you know, there's the ancient the ancient scripture, which actually comes from from Jewish faith. That you know, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I fear no evil, for God is my shepherd. So there's one example of you know some people maybe they need to find Jesus, you know, or or they need to find God, or they need to to get that peace and that calmness, which will once again allow the frontal cortex to function and start thinking. On so the other hand. You know, look at doc, Dr. Maltos, who, who is very grounded in Buddhist thinking, you know, and Buddhist thinking teaches you, like, don't have too much attachment to outcome, you know, stop wanting this or that and just be totally present. And when one is totally present, then you can begin to observe everything clearly. So I, I think there's... Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I got overly excited so, and there's a slight delay. Okay. I, I'm really... This is the first time I'm hearing somebody really with um, a clear access point. And what I hear 
is that, so first of all, it's not up to us to give people, to overload people with information or even, you know, try to convince them of anything. But if we can support people in finding some peace, some kind of lack of fear, then if we can help them with that, they can begin to find the answers for themselves. That's what I'm taking away from this. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. And and, and we have to remember, humanity on whole has been exposed to extreme mental abuse. The last three years has been organized, strategic mental abuse of mankind. So if anybody isn't shaking a little bit, they either miss the show or they're just not being honest. I've been shaken too. Um, so it's, it's quite understandable that people are in a state of panic and, you know, thinking with their brainstem more than their frontal lobes and, uh, and just reacting. What is it that had you, okay. So all of us were, um, subjected to fear tactics. I remember the first interview I saw with you, your face was blurred out. And so that took, first of all, a certain amount of courage, right? To say, okay, I'm going to speak out, but I'm not going to be public, right? And then the next interview I saw with you, you were fully, here I am, here's my name, my face public. Okay, so that was a process. What was the process? Because this is the other thing is I I want to... um, really encourage people to step over whatever it is you had to step over. So what did you have to step over? How did you do that? Well, so there's a a few influences in that process, but I mean, one big influence was that the research of the medicine led to the geopolitics. So for instance, lawyers who looked at this from a human rights point of view and was wondering, wow, why is the constitution and human rights been violated so they they came in studying this from a legal angle and they ended up understanding the medical angle it's all connected right people like myself who came in you know from the emergency department waiting for the virus and studying the medicine and it led me to the world health organization to bill and melinda gates to you know 80 patents on covid before it was launched um Etc. So, and 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 those who've those of us who've studied that, and I'm sure that includes yourself, and a lot of the people listening to this know that the agenda that COVID is part of is an agenda ultimately of population reduction, a global dictatorship, and enslavement of humanity. And in their own words, not mine. Agenda 2030, you will own nothing. So, um, as much as I worked hard for the things I had, I recognized that the agenda that seemed to be going along quite well, I mean, or quite bad, if you look at it from our perspective, but it was certainly not failing. The agenda was working. So, I knew that that meant ultimately everybody was going to lose everything they had. And, So um, in order for me, you know, by the end of 2020, when I realized that if I didn't go along with this stuff, like just hook, line and sinker, if I stayed at work and continued to advise 
staff to not even think about taking that injection if they wanted to survive long term with a healthy life. Um, it it became apparent that uh, that I was going to run into a lot of trouble, and also it became very obvious to me that society as a whole that we were all running into a lot of trouble. So at the end of twenty twenty, um, I. I decided to resign uh, all my uh, professional positions. Now, the reason I did that was I really didn't want to have trouble with the College of Physicians and Surgeons and all this stuff. But I also knew that as a as a doctor and as a human being, I had a responsibility to advise people and to make sure that we were actually solving the problem rather than being played and used to hurt people and destroy our own civilization. So I sold all my stuff because I knew that I would have to exist without an income. And again, you know, as maybe as an eMERGE doc too, I'm, I'm accustomed to making a decision about things. For instance, if I see certain physical traits, physical signs when I'm examining someone who's been in a car accident, even though they're breathing, I'm a, I will tend to know by examining them which one's lungs are in the process of collapsing. And then I'll make a pretty big decision to actually make an incision in their chest. I don't like cutting people for fun, but literally make a decision with somebody who's actually breathing that I would make an incision and insert a tube in the space around their lungs to drain the blood or whatever so that they stay alive. So it's not a foreign concept to me to deal with something before it's worse of a problem. So um, in this case, to deal with all of us owning nothing and being happy, not really happy, but under a global dictatorship and being physically damaged and our population reduced and our children sterilized and all the things that come along with this. Um, it made sense for me to take the gloves off. And so I resigned all my work. I took a sabbatical from clinical work and just dedicated myself to what I hope would take six months, which is, OK, let's just get the truth out. Let's just. Let's make sure people all knew the truth. But I've been doing that for almost three years now. Yeah, I uh, I understand I understand that very well. I know when I first started my blog, I thought yeah, people just need this information. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure this isn't going to take over my life. <laughs> luckily, luckily we were naive enough to jump in, and now we 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 got no choice but to keep going. That's a, you know that's a really good point. It's true. Once you've jumped in, once you've made the decision, there is no going back. No. How how do we get people to jump in? Because I mean, really, if life's going well and you're in the matrix and you know, you see those of us who've jumped in and, you know, sacrificing things and in your case being persecuted, you know, having your reputation smeared, your, you know, your career ruined. What's the incentive to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of truth to that. I mean, one thing is, you know, in terms of my reputation, I mean, I, I, I think I have a pretty damn good reputation right now. You know, I mean, I got an award, I got an, a trophy sitting on my desk here, medical free <laughs> medical heroism award. You know, I got that with Dr. Byron Bridal and Dr. Mary O'Connor. You know, that's, that's something to be proud of. You know, and, and at the same time as, for instance, 
you know, I'm, I'm praying for the people at the college to wake up because you have to remember, it is most likely that they actually did take these injections too, that they actually fell for the lie. Yeah. So they've got health problems and I'm actually one of the people really trying to help them and everybody else. That's why I put so much work into helping to advance the detoxification methods and the information for people to know how to deal with the poisoning of the body that comes from these um, injections. How do you, okay, so th this is a really fascinating part for me because here we are, and, and I'm going to say in particular you, because it's like your career that's been on the line, but how do you keep standing for people? How do you keep finding that compassion for people when they're attacking you, when you're trying to help them? Well, one thing is I live in an unusual bubble, right? Because this is, this is what I've been focused on for like every waking hour and a fair bit of my sleeping hour for three years. So uh, it's a very common experience for me to walk into an auditorium with hundreds of people I've never met and they treat me like family. And they say, we love you. Thank you so much. You saved my family's life, right? So, uh, so I don't know if I can use the term smart people, but people that are aware have a lot of respect for me. I, I probably, you know, in some ways, I mean, sure, financially is a whole other thing. But again, keep in mind, if we don't win this, everybody loses everything. So what's the point, right? Hanging on to your, hanging on to your stuff. It's like, it's like staying in, trying to hold your position in the lineup on a sinking cruise ship instead of going down below and trying to patch the hole so it doesn't sink. If it sinks, everybody sinks, even the people with double desserts and a VIP lounge, right? So then it makes sense to try and keep the boat afloat. And in this case, keeping the boat afloat is is ending, the, you know, the COVID crimes against humanity. It's so interesting. I wonder, I think there's still many people who don't even know the boat is sinking. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I learned something from Dr. Hawkinson, one of my one of my favorite people. They really haven't stopped me from helping the world. I mean, you can I used to see I used to take care of 40, 50 people a day. And now I take care of 10 to 30,000 a day. So, you know, it, it, it's funny how that works, right? Yeah. But but a lot of times when I do physically go out and I'm in an auditorium or a high school or a community center or a theater, and I, I ask people, I say, listen, I want to ask everybody a question. How many of you know someone in 2020 who you personally think died due to infection with COVID-19? And I mean, typically, let's say you have 300 people in a hall, you'll typically see one, two. And then if you ask the same, then if you ask the same group, people say, now, I also want to ask how many of you think that since the injections were rolled out at the end of 2020, beginning 2020, how many of you know somebody who you think died as a result of the injections? And what you see is almost every single hand comes up. So there's some really easy statistics. You know, the things that I wanted to prevent using the science that we knew have happened. And Again, if most people can like say a little prayer or do a little meditation or go out in the woods and stare at the trees and think of how pretty they are and get calm and then think about that, that one question, you know, think about people. How many people do you know with cancer now? How many people do you know whose cancer came back? 
How many people do you know that had a heart attack? How many young people do you know that just died? Like the, the data is overwhelming. And, and that also means that most people can see it if they just look around and realize, wow, I don't know anybody that died of COVID, but man, a lot of people have died since these shots, right? And then as well, like if you know people that have taken a lot of shots and people that have taken none shot, no shots, well, who of them has COVID now? And you find, well, actually the people that didn't take the shots, they're like doing way better, you know? And, and that's another interesting thing about, you know, when you say about, you know, dealing with the, the, the they try to slander my reputation. I'm hoping that Canada is about to catch up. And, you know, if there's people from the college and the ministry that is like, I, you know, I really, I really love you. And I really want you to just realize you've been lied to. And the latest evidence, which is very profound, is that Pfizer committed blatant fraud and people got injected with stuff they would have never agreed to. Believe me, if people had an honest, informed consent about what was in these injections and what it would do, no one in their right mind would have taken one. So that means even the person working at the college who's making 200 grand a year destroying doctors like me, it's like, guess what? I'm actually trying to save So I'm hoping that everybody increasingly and just say, I'm not doing this anymore. We're going to start doing everything and go after the criminals. Um, How do you maintain uh, that compassion, Mark? I mean, it'd be so easy well, to just piss you off all the time, you know? <laughs> I have I have my days. You could you could I have my days. There are times, um, but but again, you know, I think I think the work of people like Matteo Desmond and Dr. Peter Bragan, even though they're known for having different opinions, but the people who've looked at the psychology, everybody's been abused, right? So you know, when you see when you see someone. When you see a child run out of a building naked and screaming and, and, and they pick up something and try to swing it at you, you don't want to hate it. Wow, somebody messed this kid up. I got to get them to safety and help them better. And, and you know what I mean? That, that's everybody's situation. Even people who are like really smart, you know? Yeah. Oh, and the other thing, thing I want to mention too, too, because you said, how do I deal with, you know, them destroying my career, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's here's the bizarre thing, and I hope I hope this is just a sign that Canada is a little behind. I'm hoping that like right now, as we speak, we're catching up, right? But I'm literally being flown to Romania next week to go and teach the Parliament about COVID, right? Wow. So so you see, the truth has a certain. There's something about the truth. It's that it's true, right? So. Yes, on the one hand, have I given up my home, my investments, my income for three years now, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But remember, if we don't win, everybody loses everything. So I'll just be another guy that lost everything. But on the other hand, my credibility for doing what I've done is exceptional. Um, I have a lot of respect that I would have never had. Uh, you know, I mean, I have like, People that I talk to now, I would have never gotten to know before. I mean, I, I'm on speed dial with people in genetics labs. I can call up like David Speaker right now and say, hey, you know the genetic sequencing you did on the Pfizer vials in Ontario? Can you remind me what's the open reading sequence and how is it that it's creating the amyloid protein that's plugging up people's – like I was just a country doctor, right? So, you know, um, you know – you." Doing the right thing probably pays off in general. And either way, you know, you, we all have to face ourselves or God or something. So what, what could be worse than like 
if I disrespected myself? Like, what if I, like, if I was evil, what would I have done? Let's say I was truly evil. I could have made a fortune giving these shots out, a fortune. I could have got fake papers because I knew they were poison and I wouldn't want them. I could have got fake papers. I could have gone to the hospital and said, oh, yeah, I took my shot, no problem. I could have lined people up and had two RPNs injecting all day long, and I could have made enough money to, to fill a chest with gold. It's right? interesting. I, I, I that's really, evil, and I wouldn't respect myself. Yeah. I think, you know, on the one hand, I, I was going to ask you about – how do you maintain the energy, the motivation to keep, not the motivation, I get the motivation, but how do you maintain the energy, the clear-headedness, the, um, the compassion long-term? But then I kind of just got your answer, which is doing the right thing has a certain source in and of itself, right? Like the, it, telling the truth is so much easier. Yeah. You know, it's just like there's nothing you have to be stressed about. There's nothing you have to remember. You know, it's just like just tell the truth. It's like yeah. it takes a lot less energy. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and self respect is worth a lot. You know, like, um, you know, for instance, right now the college. And again, I I hope they're coming around. I hope they're realizing what's been done to them and that we're trying to help them too. But you know, I was talking with a good doctor in our province. And there's a lot, like I'm not the only doctor that did the right thing and, and has, you know, had their licenses stripped. And it's sad for Canadians because it means that Canadians don't have access to the doctors they could most trust who would do the right thing when something like this happens. I think we inherently know when our integrity's off, you know, when something's not quite right. And then we end up in this kind of cycle of justification for the wrongdoings or the wrong thinking, the wrong actions in the past. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree with you. That inner harmony that comes with with being honest and and truthful, um, and uh, you know, the example of of one of the good doctors who who did the right thing quietly and came under discipline, and in the end, I spoke with him recently. I'm not going to give names or anything, um, and and. In the end, the call just said, well, we're going to let you keep your license, provided you apologize, provided you go through retraining, provided this, provided that. I wouldn't accept that because that's sort of like slavery. I don't, I'd rather, I don't want to be a slave. I didn't, I didn't, you know, a neat, one of the neat uh, people I met through LifeSite News, great organization, is this fellow, Father Joe, and he said to me, he said, you know, you don't take nothing with you, not even your bones. So, like, to sell one's soul or self-respect for money, you know, there's nothing wrong with money. But if money is your master, there's something very wrong with that relationship. And, and maybe that's part of what's going on in the world right now is maybe for a lot of us, this is the test is like, will you serve God or will you be a slave to money? Didn't have to make that decision before. But then one day we did. One day it was like, no, no, you can't follow the Hippocratic Oath and the Golden Rule today. You have to go along with something that makes no sense. You have to tell people something that you can't justify and you don't agree with. And if you do that, and if you're willing to hurt people, if you're willing to inject them with something that they would never take if they knew what was in it, then you can make your money. But you, you should, it, it, I mean, that would eat away at a person. 
it's not that I don't, I miss my lifestyle. I like, I, you know how hard I work now? I never worked this hard in my life. I have no time off. I take vacations in like hours now, you know? Um, but on the other hand, if I was driving around in my nice, like I had a nice, you know, decent car, but I, but I looked in the rear view mirror and I saw my face and I thought, wow, there's a, there's a guy that sold his soul. Right. Now, I'm not saying everybody that went along with it sold their soul. I think a lot of them, the mental abuse really worked. I think at some strange conflicted level, they believe, oh, the shots are safe and effective. And the doctors who said ivermectin worked are crazy, you know. And I feel, you know, I feel as, as sad for them as I do if I saw any creature that's been abused to the point of neuroses. Um, I'd rather be in economic stress than be internally stressed, hating myself. And then, you know, again, keeping in mind, if we don't turn this around, nobody, like, if a doctor thinks, oh, well, I'm, I'm one of them, certainly, you, that's not, the people doing this to the world, you're not one of them. They'll use you, and then they'll eat you up and spit you out. So there's just no reason to go along with it. I really hear in what you're saying, I mean, what I hear is the opportunity of this horrible crisis. Uh, what I hear is the opportunity for us to rise up, to be our greatest selves, to really true ourselves up to our values, to become the people, the best people we can be. What is, what is, I, I mean, I think you've answered this, but it sounds to me like your experience of yourself is more empowered now through all of this. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I, you know, I don't want the people, to, I don't want people to get it wrong. I, there's stressful elements of this. You have to keep in mind. I loved my job. You know, I, I, I still want to serve my, my fellow citizens. I, you know, when a little kid falls out of a tree and breaks his or her arm, I like the fact that I'm very good at not only assuring them, but of bringing them out of the pain of straightening that arm up just beautifully. So it's going to heal nice putting a nice cast on, sending them home with a stuffed toy. I like that. That's really fun. And get paid for doing that too. That's wonderful. And for those people, it's great. Like people were very happy to have my care. So, uh, I, and and I want, I, I'm not just fighting for myself. I want Patrick Phillips reinstated, Dr. Litschke, Dr. Killian, Dr. Phillips, Dr. Christian, Dr. Malthus, Dr. Hoff, Dr. Milburn, Dr. Shoemaker. Like, I mean, I could go on. I, I could list a lot of, I'm not the only doctor that said, no, no, no. I read the ingredients, not right, not taking it, not supporting it. Um, I want all of us uh, reinstated, but at the same time, um, you know, this is, I'm not saying the last few years, there's ways that's been hard on my health. I mean, there's a sleep deprivation, you know, I, I, you know, trying to help solve problems that are huge can have you waking up at three in the morning, trying to figure it out. Um, but so in terms of self-respect, my self-respect is, is more than it ever was. Cause, cause I know yeah. I've done the best I can and I keep doing the best I can and, and then keep in mind people, you know, most of the other doctors actually had to get injected with this stuff. There's some of the most injected people in our society. You know, Dr. Marcus and I both wrote about the deaths of doctors and it's not that doctors are dying more. Everybody's dying. 
What would be your advice to people um, who are, I mean, you've talked about, you know, what to say to people who don't yet see or who are questioning. And I, I love the, the questions you asked. They're very simple, right? Do you know anybody who died of COVID? Do you know anybody who's died since the injection, you know, or the turbo cancers and all that? Those are great questions and very logical, very simple you don't need to have any medical information really to ask those simple questions. But what what would you say, what advice do you have for people who are just trying to, who are really trying to survive what's happening right now and see light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I'm not very good at denial and I'm not very good at just saying, don't worry, we got this fixed because it's not that simple. Um, it takes courage to face it, to look at what's really happening takes courage. And, you know, uh, behind, behind the European Union, there's a park. And in that park, there are about a dozen large brass statues of ostriches with their heads buried. That tells you something. They're expecting people to just bury their heads and close their eyes because it's stressful. Knowing that there's a wolf coming at you when you're an ostrich is scary. But guess what? Burying your head doesn't fix anything. It just means you're there to get chewed up when it hits you. So people need some courage and, and to, to, to look at things. And then we have to realize that nobody's going to pay us to do the right thing right now. Like our, our governments and institutions are so infiltrated and we're in a process of having to take them back and restore them or build something new. I don't know. We're, we're, that's still a process that's happening. But everybody has a part to play. Um, and for instance, you're playing the part. You're helping people navigate through this psychologically. You're looking for people that are doing it and trying to get their information shared with other people. So you're taking and you're doing your part to help restore the world. I'm doing my part. You know, Michael Alexander, as a constitutional lawyer, is doing his part. People that take Action Canada and Action for Canada and Strong and Free Canada and Canada Health Alliance, all these organizations, different people are doing things using the skills they have artists are using their skills musicians are using their skills so everyone has a part to play um and the other thing is we're well into this fight now so it's not like the early days in the early days i was really just working solo and it wasn't you know months later we started connecting but now there's organizations so people don't have to say oh what can i do i'm going to come up with something it's like well one thing you can do which will be really good for you in a lot of ways is join an organization that's doing something about it. You know, I come from, from Bancroft and, and uh, um, Wilma Brethauer organizes a group there, a very local grassroots people. She's in this, she's doing, she's doing her part just like you and me are, you know, so people in Bancroft can call up Wilma Brethauer and say, I want to get involved. How can I help? Right. People, anywhere can join take action Canada or action for Canada and say, look at, these are my skills. How can I help? Um, let's say you're a doctor or you're a nurse who's still working in the system. Well, for one, make sure you're getting in the detox. Don't don't refuse to give anybody another injection, right? So even if you're going to keep your job, you know what? 
finance those of us who've lost our job trying to fight this, right? So everybody can do something um, and in the process can get around other people who have already kind of gotten out of the matrix enough to know what's going on. And then you won't be questioning your sanity when you analyze reality for what it is. I want to thank you for your courage um, and more than your courage, your humanity. It, my experience with you in this conversation and in every time I've met you, it's just like you're so real, you're accessible, you're human, you use humor, you know, it's, it's really great. So thank you for being an example for all of us because I really feel when I listen to you, I feel a part of something, you know, and I feel like, yeah, we're, we're good. We can handle this. You know, we can do this together. So thank you for that, Mark. Oh, thanks, Michelle. The warm sentiments are mutual. And I look forward to seeing you at the next event. And uh, yeah. look out, Barbara and I are going to want to hug you as usual. So <laughs> take your vitamin so, D. <laughs> every day. Every day. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Michelle. Blessings. There are so many life lesson gems to mine from Dr. Mark Trozzi's words of wisdom. When I listen to him, I am taken back to a time when a good country doctor was worth his weight in gold. I am left with the reminder that while we move forward with technology and so-called progress, it would behoove us to move back to an ethos of ethics, to a time when a man's word was his bond to the principle of what virtually every spiritual tradition teaches, to treat others as we would want to be treated. Even as the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons was persecuting the good doctor, he maintained his adherence to the golden rule. He treated them with compassion, even as he faced their injustice. In a time when infighting among those committed to freedom and justice is leading to the same behavior we've seen from governments and institutions, Mark's dignified response is among the greatest lessons we can learn. Love thy enemy. We cannot succumb to the tactics of authoritarianism. The war of information we find ourselves in is a spiritual war, a war on truth, beauty, and goodness. If we are to win this war, we have no choice but to follow the spiritual path of love and compassion, even and especially as we pursue justice and accountability. This is our opportunity and my second biggest takeaway from our conversation. We can, as Mark said, make the best of everything. We can be the alchemists of our anger, using our greatest challenges to become our greatest selves. And this leads to my third takeaway. When we stay grounded in these principles, we are not run by our fears. As Dr. Trozzi pointed out, fear reduces intelligence. There has never been a more important time to access our higher brain function and our heart-centered spirituality. To quote Mark, act as a whole conscious being. And as Dr. Trozzi also said, everyone has a part to play from the things we say and do to where we spend our money. Switching away from big box stores and toxic products that weaken our immune systems is a simple way to make a difference for ourselves and our families. 
If you'd like to find out about how to make the switch while supporting this podcast, please reach out and find out about the Switch Away Initiative. Contact me through gatheryourwits.com. And for those of you who would like to earn extra income, I am gathering a small team of ambassadors to help others make the switch. There has never been a better time for us to come together as a community. I'd like to hear your key takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Mark Trozzi. Please share in the comments section and stay tuned. Be true to yourself and remember that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Thank you.